Joshua chapter 3. And uh, here it is, verses 9 through 16. Joshua said to the Israelites, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. This is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, Jebusites, and the Termites. No, that's not in there. See, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe. And as soon as the priests who carry the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carry the ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. While the flowing water flowing down to the Sea of Arabah, the Dead Sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. Let's uh, let's pray this morning as we um, dive into this uh, story this morning. Lord, we are so thankful for your uh, goodness, your mercy, your grace. Thankful for another day. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the, the gift of life, and we rejoice in uh, the, the gift of uh, Jack uh, Wayne Napier. And uh, Lord, we pray for him and his uh, mom and dad, and uh, just thank you for the, the new birth Lord, we thank you for our new birth, and we thank you for a salvation that we can have through your Son, Jesus. Lord, remind us this morning that we're strangers and pilgrims, that this world is not our home, that we're just passing through. And so I pray that you would speak to us this morning through your word. Lord, you know each individual heart, you know each individual concern in our lives, and Lord, I pray that uh, the Spirit of God would speak to each of us today and bring truth and illumine our hearts and minds to what you have for us. So open up our minds. May we be ready to receive what you have for us today. We will thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We've been looking at the book of Joshua, uh, that great book from the Old Testament that is a part of the history section of the Old Testament. It's really the history of Israel. And uh, this is message number four. We gave an overview of the book of Joshua about three or four weeks ago. Looked at Joshua chapter one, that great passage where God comes to Joshua and says, Joshua, uh, don't be afraid. Be strong. Be encouraged. Uh, I'm going to go with you and as they're ready to go into the promised land. And then uh, last week we looked at the story of Rahab from Joshua chapter 2 and saw how when the spies uh, went in to spy out Jericho, uh, it was Rahab, as we talked about God's amazing grace, that, that, that became a believer in the true God Yahweh and protected those spies. And in return for her faith, when Israel came in and conquered Jericho, well, they saved Rahab. And uh, they saved her family because uh, they had put their trust in the God Jehovah. Well, the book of Joshua, then, as we've mentioned, is is about conquering. It's it's about conquering the promised land, the land of Canaan. It was a land that God promised to Israel through the Abrahamic covenant 
hundreds of years before this. God came to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and said, not only am I going to make you a great nation, not only am I going to bless the whole world through your descendants, and that was the promise of Jesus, but I'm going to give you a land. And uh, so part of the covenant was that God promised to the nation of Israel a land, the land of Canaan. We know it as Israel today. They're still battling over that land. But uh, we want to look this morning at this passage that talks about um, Israel crossing over the Jordan. There's one barrier now that's keeping them from entering into the promised land. God wanted them to go in 40 years earlier, and, and the people were too scared. So for 40 years, wandered in the wilderness. A whole generation dies off. New generation raises up. New leader, Joshua. And now they're ready to enter into this promised land. And so we're going to think about uh, the Jordan River. And I think in your bulletin, you've got a little map of uh, overview of the promised land and and uh, some key points that we're going to think about this morning, the ge- ge- uh, geography points. Uh, there's the Jordan River highlighted in blue, about 156 miles long, uh, flows from the north to the south. I started thinking about the Jordan River and did a little research, and we have a river in our area called the Raisin River, very similar in size and length to the Jordan River. Raisin River is about 130 miles long, about the same size as the Jordan River, and uh, so uh, here's the Jordan River, and that's the only thing that is separating Israel from crossing into the promised land. Now we know from the New Testament the Jordan River is also significant because that's where Jesus was baptized. John the Baptist came along and he baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. Very popular tourist spot today for those that go over and visit the Holy Land. Um, my, my dad led many tours to Israel over his uh, many years of ministry and uh, uh, the Jordan River is a key spot to, for people to, to visit, and a lot of a lot of folks um, want to be baptized in the Jordan River because that's where Jesus was baptized. Although our water is just as good as well, we're going to have a baptismal service here in about five, four or five weeks. But uh, hey, I thought um, we would uh, take a few moments and uh, thought you might like to know what the Jordan River looks like. So I think we've got our video that we want to show. This is the Jordan River today. Uh, this is about two minutes long, and so you'll just get a little sense of the geography of what we're looking at, and then we'll get back into uh, Joshua chapter 3. So let's uh, take a look at the Jordan River. Well, that gives you a little uh, visual picture of what the Jordan River looks like, and uh, I know some of you fishermen out there are already thinking, I wonder if there's any fish in there. There probably are. Uh, but uh, not not a very uh, big river, uh, three to ten feet deep in most of its spots. And so we might begin to think, well, what's the, what's the, what's the obstacle here? It almost looks like you kind of jump across some of those stones and, and cross the Jordan River. Well, uh, if you listen carefully to our scripture reading this morning, there's one little uh, key factor here as we read in verse 15. It says, now the Jordan River is at flood stage all during harvest. Oh, here's one complicating factor. Uh, every spring, uh, during the spring harvest, the Jordan River overflowed its banks. 
Now this is what uh, Dr. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary on uh, Joshua entitled Be Strong has to say about this. During most of the year, the Jordan River was about 100 feet wide. Not very wide. I, I kind of measured it off. It's from like this back wall to that um, middle table um, in our entryway there, 100 feet wide. But at the spring flood season, the river overflowed its banks and became a mile wide. Oh, this is a little more of a challenge now. We're not talking about just crossing 30 feet over a medium depth river. We're talking about a river at flood stage that is a mile wide. And so uh, let's look at the story and we're going to set some other context here. Let's look at the population of Israel, all right? The population of Israel is our first point because we need to ask the question, well, how many Israelites are trying to cross the Jordan River? And uh, we don't know exactly for sure, but if we read our Bibles carefully, we can get a pretty good idea of how many there were. And for that, we need to go back to the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers, and uh, that's aptly named because uh, the book of Numbers is all about Numbers. And uh, there's two censuses in the book of Numbers, one at the beginning and one at the end, toward the end of Moses' life. God told Moses to take a census. And so they're wanting to find out how many people are in each tribe, specifically how many fighting men, how many, what's the size of Israel's army? And so Numbers 26.4, God says to Moses, take a census and to the leaders of the men 20 years old or more as the Lord commanded. So, uh, so now they're counting how many people are in each tribe, specifically how many fighting men, how many soldiers 20 years old and up. And I won't read through the whole passage here, obviously, but when you come to verse 51 of Numbers 26, the total number of the men of Israel, 20 years old and older, 601,730. Pretty specific number. So there's 600,000 men that are 20 years old and up. And we might say, well, there's probably an equal number of women. So double that amount, 1.2 million. And now we need to add in yet those that are younger than 20, some children and some teenagers, you can very conservatively say there are two million people trying to get across the Jordan River at flood stage. So this is a little more of a complicated task than first thought. And so here's Joshua trying to take two million people across the Jordan River at flood stage and into the promised land. Well, uh, we're going to kind of peruse through the text here and let's look at um, the next point here. And it's the preparation for crossing the Jordan. So here's here's uh, Joshua and they're preparing to go across the Jordan. And uh, you can look at the the map and the inset here as we read through this to get a little idea of ge- geographically where things are at. Uh, verse 1 of Joshua 3, early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim, went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. So you can see on your map um, that this city here, Shittim, is about 10 or 15 miles away from the Jordan River. So what they're preparing to do is they're moving 2 million people from that city to the the banks of the river. 
After three days, the officers went throughout the camp giving orders to the people. Here's their instructions. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. So there has to be some organization here, doesn't it? To, to um, move two million people in, in place. And so uh, they're saying, hey, when you see the Ark move, when you see the priests carry the Ark, then that's your cue to get into position. The next uh, next verse uh, says, um, then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. So follow the ark. Now notice the last part of verse 4. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. You're going to follow the ark, but I want you to stay 2,000 cubits away. Now cubits about a foot and a half. So he says stay 3,000 feet away from the ark. It's over half a mile. Now, probably a couple of reasons for that. That's so two million people could all see it, um, so a little distance away. The other issue here is the holiness of God. That the Ark of the Covenant represents what? God's presence. And so we, we need to recognize the, 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 the presence of God, the holiness of God. Remember where the Ark of the Covenant was kept in the tabernacle? Into the Holy of Holies. And the only person that was allowed in there once a year was the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And uh, that story from Second Samuel, um, when we read about a fellow by the name of Uzzah, and, uh, they were moving the Ark of the Covenant, and God had a very specific prescribed way to move the Ark. There were rings at each, cor- each of the four corners, long poles that went through it, and so four priests were to carry the ark, uh, one at each corner carrying the pole. They weren't supposed to touch the ark. Well, the Israelites got a little lackadaisical in following God's specific instructions, and in Second Samuel chapter 6, they're moving the ark of the covenant with some oxen, pulling it on a, a little wagon type thing, and they're going over a rocky ground, and it looks like the ark is going to fall, and so a fellow by the name of Uzzah reaches out to touch and steady the ark, and God strikes him dead, because you're not supposed to touch the ark, because it represents the holiness of God, and that's something that we need to think about as well today. If, um, yes, God is a God of love. God, God, God is our uh, encourager and our friend, but He's also a holy God. And so, stay three thousand feet uh, behind the ark. Do not go near it. And uh, then, verse five, Joshua told the people, "Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do." Amazing things among you. <laughs> Joshua tell them, hey, you, you need to prepare yourself. You need to get ready because tomorrow God's going to do amazing things in your midst. Can you imagine uh, what it was like for the Israelites to go to bed the night before and when Joshua says God's going to do some amazing things? There, there had to be a great sense of anticipation it would almost be like you know Christmas Eve night, like God's going to do something amazing tomorrow. And so they prepare themselves to cross over uh, the Jordan River. And so our, our next uh, thought here is then um, the population of Israel, 2 million. 
Now they've moved from Shittim to right at the banks of the Jordan River and they're getting ready to cross over. And now we read about the priests and the ark. So let's just continue to to read through the narrative here. And there's three messages here. The first one is Joshua to the priests, verse 6. And then God has a message directly to Joshua, verses 7 and 8. And then Joshua gives a message to the Israelites. And so um, let's let's look at that as they prepare to cross. Uh, Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. Now God's message to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Joshua, you're the new leader of Israel. Uh, Moses, the leader from 40 years ago, or from for the past 40 years, has now died. But I want the Israelites to know that just as I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. And my hand is on you, Joshua. And so God's going to be exalted, but it's also an elevation of Joshua and God's authentication that he's the the new leader of of the Israelites. So um, here we go. Verse 8, tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan waters, go and stand in the river. (laughs) Some of these instructions sound a little, little odd. But I want the the priests carrying the ark to go stand in the middle of the Jordan River. And now Joshua's message to the to the Israelites, and he's basically saying, "This is how you know that God's going to give you the the land and 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 conquer the land of Canaan." Uh, verse eleven: See, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. Now then, choose twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each tribe, and. We'll learn um, in the next uh, chapter that uh, these 12 men each took a big rock, a large rock, because they carried it on their shoulder out of the Jordan River, and they built a memorial on the other side of the Jordan River to remind themselves and their future generations of what God did on this day. So that's what the 12 men is about. Verse 13 As soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, set foot in the waters flowing down, it's um, set foot in the Jordan rather, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. And so get the picture here. The priests carrying the ark are going ahead of the people. They're a half mile ahead of everybody. We got two million people that are watching that are going to, going to follow through on the Jordan River. And what, God, what does God say? Tell those priests to, to walk. And when their feet touch the water, then the waters are going to open. And they're going to stop flowing. And, uh, and so that's, uh, that's what happened. And so this is, uh, this is the passage uh, across the Jordan. That's uh, verses 14 through 17. And uh, if you see on your map here, the Scripture tells us this little city of Adam is about... Uh, 15 miles north of where they're crossing, it says that's how far the water's backed up, all the way to the city of Adam. So uh, here it is. So when the people broke camp across the Jordan, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. It's that flood stage. As soon as the priest touched the water, the water stopped flowing. It piled all the way up to Adam. The people crossed on dry ground. Verse 17. This is the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan. 
They stood on, here's another miracle, dry ground. Now, normally the bed of a river is not dry, and this is similar to the same thing happened with the crossing of the Red Sea, uh, that the Israelites 40 years earlier uh, had uh, crossed the Red Sea on, what, dry ground. So they're walking across on dry ground while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. What an amazing story that God opened up uh, the, the river that was at flood stage and two million people crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. Now, I started to think about this story and I thought, I wonder how long that took. Uh, this couldn't have been a, a, a short period of time. Uh, we get one little hint in Joshua chapter 4, verse 10. It says the people hurried over. So they kind of hurried their way across. Isn't it interesting that every person, when they went across the Jordan River on dry ground, they would have passed by that Ark of the Covenant. They would have seen that Ark. And that was a reminder that that this is what God is doing. This is, this is God's power. This is God's presence. And, and they all walked right past the Ark of the Covenant as they then set foot on the other side of the river and for the very first time laid foot in uh, the promised land, the land of Canaan. So I don't know how long it took. Um, I was thinking about how on uh, Labor Day, there's a big crossing in the Mackinac Bridge, and that's about five miles long, and you've seen pictures. Maybe some of you have gone across it on, on Labor Day. Usually about thirty or 40,000 people go across. Um, it takes about two hours to walk across the, uh, the Mackinac Bridge, so it takes about uh, maybe 25 minutes to walk, walk a mile, but we don't know how wide this opening was, but it had to take a while until all two million people finally entered and set foot in the promised land. And as we mentioned, when we get to chapter 4, we're going to see that they, they marked this occasion. Uh, this was a significant moment in Israel's history. After the, the, the years and years of wandering and the promises of God, now that promise is beginning to be fulfilled. And so they build an altar to, uh, to recognize that for generations to come. So that when people say, hey, what's this altar all about? What are these stones about? Oh, let me tell you what God did here. So we'll look at that next week. But this morning, I thought we would look at some principles from um, this story in Joshua chapter 3. So what are some truths, some principles that we can look at and apply to our lives from what God did here uh, some uh, 3,500 years ago? So let's look at the first one. And this first one is the, the preparation principle, the preparation principle. And that really comes from the first few verses in the text where God is telling the Israelites, uh, we're going to take three days to get ready here, and I want you to prepare yourselves, consecrate yourselves, because God's going to do something amazing. So I want to think about two aspects of, of preparation. Uh, first of all, apply that to Preparation for worship. Preparation for worship. Uh, the word here, the Hebrew word here is kadash in the Hebrew. 
Let me tell you a little bit about what that word means when it says consecrate yourselves for tomorrow you will see the Lord do amazing things. It says in the Old Testament, this word is often used in connection with the Old Testament sacrifices, the priesthood, worship, and with regard to the children of Israel as God's people. It portrays the need to deal with sin in our lives. Kadash was used of setting something apart for God's use and his purposes in the sense of cleansing, preparing, and dedicating our lives to him. And so I want you to consecrate yourself. I want you to prepare yourself to worship what the true and living holy God. And that's something that we need to take to heart this morning as we come into a worship service Sometimes uh, the worship leader or the pastor will say, let's prepare our hearts for worship. What does that mean? That means we're we're about to enter into worshiping the, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Holy God of the universe, and you just don't rush into his presence. There's some very specific instructions about what that means. And in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus talks about the importance of right relationships with one another before we worship God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, if you're offering your gift at the altar, so if you're worshiping God, but you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar first and go be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. It's interesting, Jesus says, you're, you're going to come and you're going to worship, you're going to give your offering to God, and you remember there's something not right between you and another brother and sister in the body of Christ. Jesus says, uh, leave your offering. You need to go and be reconciled. Make it right before you worship a holy God. I think um, maybe if we've been married for any length of time, we've all been there. Did you ever get into a little bit of an argument or disagreement on Sunday morning? <laughs> on the way to church? <laughs> and you know, we're kind of like this with our spouse, and what do we do? We pull into the parking lot and say a few gruff words maybe, and then you get out and, good morning, it's so wonderful to see you. I've been there and I'm the pastor. <laughs> You know what, in, in my 41 years of, of ministry, I've had a lot of people say, well, um, I, I didn't come to, I'm sorry, Miss Church, we were, uh, we were vacationing somewhere, or maybe like we were, we were sick. I've never heard anybody say, you know, uh, we weren't at church last Sunday because, uh, quite frankly, uh, we had, my wife and I had some things we had to kind of work out. So rather than coming to church and kind of putting on a, a face, we we just made it right. Well, I would say better to make it right and then come to church, but if you can't make it right before 10 o'clock, then stay home <laughs> and make it right. That's what God... That's the God's principle, the, the preparation principle. And so we need to, we need to what? Prepare our hearts for, for worship. But I think there's also another aspect of this, and I, I'm calling it preparation for ministry. So God's telling Israel, prepare yourself because I'm going to do some amazing things. And so we need to not only prepare ourselves for worship, but I really believe that God uses any and every circumstance of our life to prepare us 
for what He wants to do in us. That's all through the Old Testament, all through the Bible. Moses, the leader of Israel, 40 years in Egypt, in the palace of Egypt, 40 years on the backside of the desert, being a shepherd for his father-in-law Jethro. And uh, somebody once said uh, Moses spent the first 40 years of his life thinking he was somebody. He thought he was going to be, um, you know, the, the new deliverer, and he kills this Egyptian, ends up having to run for his life. And then he spent the next 40 years of his life discovering that he was a nobody <laughs> on the backside of the desert. Nobody knew what Moses was doing. And then he discovered that at the, year, at the age of 80, God now called him to be the leader through that burning burning bush. But but all those 80 years of experience, what God was preparing Moses for something greater. We think about David, shepherd boy David, and uh, same thing. David's uh, brothers are all fighting in the Israeli army, and what's David doing? He's this youngest youngest one, and he's out there watching the sheep. And uh, but God's preparing him. Maybe he was using that slingshot with some of that uh, free time that he had. Kind of boring out there sometimes as a shepherd. God prepared him for meeting Goliath. And God was preparing David to be the next leader of the king of Israel. And so God doesn't waste any experience or pain in our life. And so whatever we are going through and experiencing, God wants to use it in our life for our ultimate benefit, and for His glory. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, Paul, the Apostle Paul writes, Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles. That word there, troubles, is the word philipsis. It really means pressure and affliction. Same word that Jesus used in John 16, 33. In this world you will have trouble. We don't get very far in life before we begin to experience the challenges and the troubles of life. But what happens? God can, can comfort us and God can help us in our troubles. But the rest of the verse says, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Oh, God brings us comfort. God brings us strength. God brings people around us to help us through our trials. Why? So that we can then help somebody else who may be going through the very same thing. And so often it's said that our area of ministry comes out of our place of pain. So where we've experienced pain and difficulties and God works in our life and he uses that and all of a sudden now we're ministering to other people that have that same uh, issue the same pain in their life. So God um, directs us and, and brings um, peace and comfort. It's the preparation principle. Here's the second one. The second one is the directive principle. The directive principle. And uh, this, uh, this principle basically uh, says God directs our lives primarily through the truths and the principles of God's word. God directs our life primarily through the truths and principles of God's Word. Now, for Israel, uh, they had it maybe a little bit easier than we did. Uh, during those wilderness wandering years, for 40 years wandering in the desert, 
If we go back to Exodus chapter 3, verses 21 and, and uh, uh, 22, I think that's the, the passage there. Maybe it, maybe it's not. I think I've got the wrong passage. But uh, you remember the story that how did God direct Israel in the wilderness? They had a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night that represented God's presence. Probably helped keep them warm as well. And wherever that pillar went, wherever that cloud went, they followed it. And how did Joshua and the Israelites get across the Jordan River? They had the Ark of the Covenant. And what was God's instructions? Wherever you see the Ark of the Covenant go, then I want you to follow. Well, God wants to direct us. And isn't it interesting in uh, verse 4? God says, then you will know which way to go since you've never been this way before. Israelites had never been in the promised land. This was all new territory for them. And I started to think about God directing our lives because as we journey through life, guess what? Every stage of life is is brand new, isn't it? When we we grow up, um, I've never been a teenager before. I've never been a college student before. I've never been in the military before, or I've never worked a full-time job before. I've never dated before. I've never been married before. I've never been a dad or mom before. I've never parented the kids this age before. I've never been a grandparent before. And when you get to my age, you say, I've never been old before. You know, I've never experienced this before. And so, so all of life is, is kind of like a new stage. And God says, I want to direct you because you've never been that way before. And now we don't have a, a cloud in the sky. We don't have the Ark of the Covenant. But we do have some direction. We have the Holy Spirit that, if we're a believer, that if we receive Christ as our Savior, that lives within us, indwells us. We have direction from this book. The Israelites didn't have that. Uh, But we have the complete 66 books of the Bible. What does God want me to do? How does God want me to act? It's all right here. We have all of Scripture to, to guide us and direct us. We have godly counselors. Proverbs chapter 11, 14. There is safety in a multitude of counselors. And I'd maybe add a a descriptive word there. There's safety in a multitude of godly counselors. Be very careful when you go to seek counsel. Uh, There's all sorts of counsel out there. But what we want to know is, is this wise counsel? Is this godly counsel? Is this what God has to say? And so God wants to direct our life. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean into your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. What will he do? He'll direct your paths. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Psalm 37, 23, the steps of a good man or woman are ordered by the Lord. And so God wants to direct us. And there's specific commands right in the Bible. There's specific principles that are right in the Bible. That when we're not sure what to do or which way to go, uh, we can find guidance 
in the 66 books that God has given us. So God wants to direct us, and today primarily he does it through his word, which is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Let's look at the last one, third principle here from Joshua chapter 3. We're going to call it the faith principle, the faith principle. When faced with obstacles and challenges, we need to trust and obey God, even when it seems counterintuitive. I had to look up that word. I'm not smart enough to know what that word means. It means when it doesn't make sense. We need to trust and obey God when God clearly speaks through his word, even when it doesn't seem like that's the right thing to do, even when it does not make sense. That would have been very easy for Israel to do here in Joshua chapter 3. I mean, the leaders of Israel and Joshua could have gotten the, the leaders together and said, you know what, um, the Jordan's at flood stage and uh, this is going to be really difficult to cross with two million people. So it makes logical, reasonable sense that let's wait another four months. Let's wait till summertime and and the floods are going to recede, and then it's going to be much easier to cross the Jordan River. After all, we've waited 40 years. What's, what's another three or four months? I mean, that, that, to me, that makes logical sense. But that's not what God said to do. God had it at flood stage, and God told those uh, Israelite priests, how would you have liked to have been the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant that's on the front side, so the two in the front, two in the back. And God says, you walk into that river, and when your foot touches the water, then the waters are going to stop. And I'd want to say, well, God, how about this? How about, how about if you open the river first, and then, then, I'll, then we'll walk through? God could have done that, but what did God wanted those priests, what, to exercise faith. I want you to step into the water. (laughs) And when you exercise faith and obedience to me, then the waters are going to open up. And so uh, Hebrews 11, verse 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so we need to, to live by faith, not just be saved by faith, but the Bible tells us the just shall live by faith. And so we need to obey God, even when it seems counterintuitive. And God's preparing Israel because their very first battle, the battle of Jericho, General Joshua gets the instructions and God says, here's how we're going to do this. I want you to march around the wall, not say a word once a day for six days, and then on the seventh day, march around the wall seven times and kind of blow your trumpets and yell, and the walls are going to come tumbling down. Joshua's like, um, run that by me again. That's our military strategy. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. And so it's, it's the faith principle. Now what step of faith and trust do we need to take? Where we know that God has clearly spoken. One, one that's very clear in Scripture is the area of finances. There's one topic in the Bible, one time where God comes and says, I want you to test me. I want, I want you to put me to the test, and it has to do with finances. 
It's Malachi chapter 3, verses uh, 10 through 12, so let me try to, let me read it rather than trying to, um, trying to quote it. Malachi 3, God comes to Israel and he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be no room enough to store it. God promises his blessing. He says, I want you to test me in finances. I want you to bring to me the first fruits and then see if I won't bless you. Now that doesn't make logical sense. So if we like kind of do our bills and like, oh, this bill, this bill, this bill, and oh, here's what I have left over. I'm going to give it to God. God says, no, test me. I want, I want your, I want your first fruits. I want you to take that step of faith and take that step of obedience. And then God begins to work. And so what area of your life do you need to, to just step out and, and, and trust God? I remember 40 plus years ago, I was a seminary student in Grand Rapids Seminary, and Diane and I were attending a, a very small Baptist church, East Leonard Baptist Church, and uh, drove by it about six months ago, and the uh, building's still there. It's a different total different congregation that's worshiping in that building. Um, that's where I preached my very first sermon as a seminary student. And uh, I remember it was from Exodus chapter 3. And uh, I had all my notes, everything written out, and I got through it in about 12 minutes. And like, uh-oh, what am I going to do now? Some of you are thinking, yeah, I wish it'd be a little more like that. But, but, uh, you know, I went and like, okay, I guess I'll kind of go through it all again. And, uh, and so, um, yeah, that's, that's where we, we first, uh, started, uh, our, our out. But I remember, uh, going to the pastor and taking a step of faith. And I, I said to him, like, well, I guess if I'm going to go into ministry and I'm a seminary student, I should probably like try to get, really involved in the church. So uh, is there anything that I can help you with? And he said, yeah, I'd like you to, to teach a class. Would you like to teach a class? Like, well, never done that before, but I guess that's what God wants me to do. And uh, boy, that was horrible too. I mean, not for me, it was horrible for the people listening. But, you know, I took that step of faith. And uh, the more you do something, the, the better God uh, kind of refines you. But uh, the faith principle uh, we need to obey God. So I don't know what circumstance, situation you're facing that seems insurmountable or almost impossible. Oscar Elias in 1931 wrote a little chorus. We've sung it here in the past. You have any rivers you think are uncrossable? You got any mountains you can't tunnel through? Or are you facing some circumstance in your life that seems uh, overwhelming? God specializes in things thought impossible, and He will do what no other power can do. And so Israel's in the promised land. Now they're facing some more obstacles. They're facing about 30 walled cities, and uh, they're facing some military battles, and uh, God uh, promises to be with them. But now they're in the land. And uh, three principles to remember. God has a plan and purpose for whatever you're experiencing. He's preparing you for life and ministry. 
Secondly, the directive principle. Keep your eyes fixed on God and the truths and principles of God's Word. And that's how He will direct and guide your paths. And thirdly, when God's truth is revealed, we need to trust and obey. And so let me close by just reading Isaiah chapter 43, the first three verses. And uh, as you face challenges in life, this is God's promise to you. Isaiah 43, 1 through 3. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name and you are mine. You belong to me. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And that's God's promise to you. No matter what you're facing, as you trust Him, as you obey Him, He will carry you through. And He says in His Word, He'll carry us all the way home until we finally enter his presence. Let's let's pray together, shall we? Lord, thank you for this um, story from a long, long time ago of how you showed yourself to be um, the the Almighty God, Jehovah, and how you brought Israel across uh, what seemed like an insurmountable obstacle. The Jordan River at flood stage and two million people crossing on dry ground. Lord, I pray that as we journey through this life, Lord, that we will um, remember that whatever we are experiencing and facing, Lord, that that you want to use that for ultimately our, our benefit and to be able to help other people and to give you glory. Lord, would you direct our lives? Lord, as we enter from new phase of life to new phase of life, Lord, help us to keep our eyes fixed on you and your word. And Lord, we know that you will promise to to guide us and deliver us. And then, Lord, help us to respond in faith. Help us to trust and obey. And when we obey, uh, we realize that you will open up the windows of heaven and you will pour your blessing on us. Thank you that you've promised to always be with us. And Lord, I pray specifically for, for many that are here this morning that are facing a, a, a challenge. Maybe it's a financial challenge. Maybe it's a, a relationship challenge. Maybe it's a physical challenge. Lord, remind them that they belong to you and that you will be with them and you will guide them and you will direct them. And Lord, we thank you and praise you for your promises and your word and all that you will do in Jesus' name. Amen.